Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you this evening. As always, we're going to start off with a great uh, discussion here on the Coach's Corner panel. And a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by my very special guest, Robert Shorney. He is the owner of Nassau Golf and the president of Nassau Precision Casting. Uh, he'll be joining me on the second half, and uh, always uh, excited to uh, do the broadcast. Of course, they are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. But for some reason, if you can't join us live, not to worry. Just go to blogtalkradio.com slash golftalklive and just scra- scroll down excuse me, to the uh, on-demand section, and you'll see all of the previously aired shows in their entirety there in the recorded versions, and including tonight's will be there after the broadcast ends. So if you missed the show, don't worry about it. Go to that link and, and uh, at any time when it's convenient for you, and you can scroll down and uh, catch them out uh, at the on-demand section. But, all right, let me introduce tonight's panel, and we'll get into this evening's discussion. First up, of course, is um, good buddy and friend John Hughes, a PGA Master Professional and a Senior Editor, Top 25 Instructor with Golf Tips Magazine. He was also the Honorary President of the North Florida's PGA Section. And in 2013, he was the uh, uh, recipient of the PGA of America's Professional Development Award and also part of Golf Tips Advisory staff. Uh, also, uh, a new friend I would like to say is Jim Endicott. He's been teaching uh, this great game of golf for uh, over 38 years, uh, former Golf Digest School's general manager, and a seven-time PGA Award winner, uh, including the 2022 North Florida PGA Sections Patriot Award and two North Florida PGA Youth Development Awards. Uh, currently the Director of Instruction at the Royal St. Cloud Golf Links in Florida, and he, too, now is a top 25 instructor with Golf Tips Magazine. So, John and Jim, welcome to the Coach's Corner panel segment here on Golf Talk Live. All right. Uh, glad that you guys could, uh, could join me tonight. And we're going to talk about a, a number of different things, um, but basically under the same theme, we're going to talk about some of the biggest golf swing mistakes. And with your help, we're going to try to see if we can fix some of them. Um, I'm going to go in the order as I introduced you, of course, uh, just to get things started. And, and this is one, John, I, I know we've talked about this before, but I think there's a, a couple of things, that, uh, ways that we can really approach this. But the first one is, uh, and this is a big mistake, is not warming up before you go out to play. And I'm not talking about a regular practice session, but warming up. And I think there's really a couple of ways to approach this. Number one is uh, what's, what would you consider to be a sufficient warm-up? What would you include in that warm-up if you were advising your student uh, and is there such a thing as too much of a warm-up before you head out in the course? Well, that's actually three things, Ted, but I can tackle all three. <laughs> Thanks again for the opportunity to be on You're the welcome. show and contribute, Jim. 
My pleasure is always to share the spotlight with you. It should be a robust conversation at some point, I'm, sh- I'm sure. As far as warm-up, uh, I, I don't leave home without it. This <laughs> is the way I'm going to put it. Um, warm-up solves a lot of different things for you. Tempo, rhythm, uh, prevents injury, allows you to understand what your pluses and minuses are that particular day. Without a warm-up, you're you're going out there cold, and it's going to take a while for you to really get up to speed. I know sometimes when I'm called to the tee for that emergency nine and all I get to do is a little five to six ball routine on the greens to get some green speed, it takes me four or five holes just to get my body relaxed enough and, and feeling good enough to be able to swing and make good swings. Uh between the first tee and that fourth or fifth hole, it's everything I can do to get my body going. And, and for the older golfers that listen to the podcast, I can not only say warm-up's important, a warm-down is important, probably more important than the warm-up. Mm-hmm. Can you warm up too much? I don't think it's warming up physically, especially for the better golfer, as much as taking too much time, putting – too much thought and effort into the warm-up. Maybe your anxiety levels just through the roof. It's a tournament you're wanting to win or, or a round that you're wanting to beat your buddy so bad you show up and it's out of your routine. What you have to realize is warm-up should be part of a routine. If that routine differs by a significant amount, it could either cause you harm by having too much time to warm up and think about things or not enough time to get you off to that slow start. So in essence, I would say warm-ups are definitely important. Some people can do with less. Some people need more, like myself. But the other thing to remember is if you're warming up, please warm down. But in reverse Mm -hmm. order of how you warm up, not necessarily with the swings, but at least with stretching, with with some kind of exercise before you get in the car and head back home. You'll be very surprised doing that, how much better you feel trying to get out of the car. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, that's something that we don't often talk about or hear about is the warm down. Uh, You're exactly right, uh, Johnny. Your analogy is a lot of times we, you know, get out and do these things in preparation um, but, you know, when you're out in the golf course for several hours and, you know, obviously tension can creep in uh, depending on the circumstances. Uh, and by the time you go to head back to the car, you're still a little wound up and whatnot. So you, die. you definitely need to uh, do that warm down as well and, and get in a relaxed state so that when you're uh, driving home, you know, however long that may be, um, you're in a relaxed state again. And you kind of decompressed, I guess, is a good way to put it from the round as well. Um, and I just think you'll, uh, as you point out, you'll feel better all the way around. Um, a great, uh, great point. Um, Jim, I'm going to talk about this, and, and again, I'm going to put a, a couple of things, maybe three. We'll see. I might do the same to you as I did to John. Um, uh, and, and this, this, <laughs> thanks, John, by the way, for pointing that out. I thought I'd throw an extra win. I hope was hoping you wouldn't notice, but you did, so I should have known better. Um, but anyways, uh, this one here is really about wrong, the wrong clubs. And there's really, again, a few ways to to look at this. Um, Number one, you know, a lot of times maybe uh, somebody's had some hand-me-downs, and this is maybe more for the newer golfers. You know, years ago, that's what we got. A lot of cases, we got hand-me-downs maybe from a father or an uncle or what have you, or grandfather even. 
And, you know, it was okay, but in today's game where you want to be more competitive. So um, getting the wrong clubs, um, let's decide how we decide what's the right club for us. And then there's another angle to attack this from as well that I'd like you to touch on. And that is what are the right clubs in the bag for me? How do I decide which clubs I should have in the bag? Uh, meaning uh, do I need a driver? Do I need maybe consider a hybrid instead of uh, some long irons? That's the general direction what I'm trying to get you to go through. But let's talk about the other first, and then you can touch on that as well. Well, thank you, Ted. Uh, it's great to be here. And, John, great to be on the show with you as well. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the right clubs, yes, and you've, you've, you've hit it just right in saying so often we – People get hand-me-downs or go to the go to a garage sale and they they buy something inexpensive to get started in the game and they've picked up something in today's market that uh, maybe was a good piece of equipment back in the in the 80s or or older and uh, they've really set themselves up uh, in a detrimental situation uh, because the equipment is so good now uh, even entry level products for the newer golfer are good uh, to come in and get a box set that's, uh, that's close to the right fit is is, is good. Um, the wrong fit, uh, the right fit, depending on uh, your skill level. Uh, as you're starting out, uh, it's not as critical in the, in the fit. As we continue to progress and, and get better at the game, the fit becomes more and more important as we go along. But to determine the correct fit, there's a measurement from the ground up to your fist. And uh, that measurement, uh, if you're uh, like me, uh, five foot nine, uh, fairly standard size golfer, although the today's market we're seeing taller and taller players, uh, I measure for a standard length. And uh, that, uh, that measurement, uh, another inch, we may need to extend golf clubs and again, you could go into a box set and have those extended if you're looking to just enter the game and get going. Uh, custom fit, a uh, great way to go if budget isn't a concern. And being properly fit certainly can enhance your improvement. Uh, the right clubs in the bag. Uh, that, again, is uh, very skill set dependent. Um, mm-hmm. The newer players... Uh, we need to look at having golf clubs in that bag that have plenty of loft. Uh, loft is your friend, as we call it. Um, is a driver good for a brand-new golfer? Probably not. Uh, probably better to, for them to be starting off. One of the uh, pieces of equipment I love to put in a newer golfer's hand is, is a club called uh, a seven-wood or a heavenwood. Uh, it's got plenty of loft, and that ball gets in the air easily. Uh, not only off the tee, but off the ground. And uh, you can get a pretty good distance out of it. Uh, so almost more versatile than the hybrid. The hybrid is great out of the rough. But uh, that uh, seven wood or heaven wood is, is wonderful out of the fairway as well. Uh, as far as the makeup uh, from there, um, we can start most new golfers probably around a six iron on down to a sand wedge. Uh, do they need especially wedges? probably not as a newer player. As their skills continue to advance, we start to look at different loft and gapping of wedges and different makeup of clubs. And as we get into the better players, we would also look at the clubs relative, not just to skill set, 
but also to the golf course they're playing on. They're playing on a golf course that has deeper rough. Those hybrids come into play and are a great piece of equipment for that. Uh, if they're playing a fast golf course, not much rough like the course I'm at, uh, a hybrid is uh, not as necessary. Mm-hmm. So the proper fit is important uh, as we see our development in the game. Yeah, I, I, great points as well, uh, Jim. And I think just to add uh, real real quickly uh, on this too is I think particularly for the newer players to the game that are just sort of trying it out, testing the waters, uh, you know, even though I know we're allowed to ha- carry 14 clubs in the bag, they may even want to start with a smaller set. Uh, wouldn't you agree? I mean, they don't necessarily have to uh, have 14 clubs in the bag to, to try. They can always add as they go along as they get more uh, confident with the game and, and more skilled. What, what are your thoughts there about maybe starting with a smaller set? Obviously, some selected clubs based on, on uh, you know, certain factors, but what do you think about maybe starting them out with a smaller set, maybe even just nine clubs in the bag instead of 14? I think that's a wonderful idea, uh, and that's one thing I love about uh, how we can order custom sets now with, with most of the manufacturers is we can order that set based on the clubs necessary. Uh, I've ordered uh, sets where we went six iron, eight iron, pitching wedge, and a sand wedge. And then the beauty mm-hmm. of that is as they continue to improve in skill, then we could add in those odd-numbered clubs in between. We could get a nine iron and add the seven iron and then add the five mm-hmm. iron. Um, so I think it's a wonderful way to get into the game in a custom arena, and that can help with some people's budget a little bit as well. Yeah, and, and also when you're when you're really unsure, and, and my my point obviously for bringing that up is is for some of those that are newer to the game that really aren't sure yet how far they want to go or or if they're even really all that interested um, may want to uh, start out a little smaller, if you will, and and work their way up. So I think that's just a great great way to uh, toe in the sand, as it were. Um, John, I'm coming back to you, and, and this is one here. I know all three of us, I'm sure, have seen on the lesson T is uh, we see somebody. Uh, you know, uh, setting up and, and getting ready to, to swing, and they're literally swinging for the fences. In other words, swinging too hard, uh, which caused a lot of uh, issues there. Maybe you could touch on some of the issues that uh, maybe swinging too hard can, can cause. And how do we know, um, how do we find that balance point for our swing? How do we find the right rhythm and tempo for our swing uh, and still maximizing the, the, our potential distance without having to literally leap out of our, our golf shoes? Great question that I see happen quite a bit. I have a client who comes every Tuesday, and the way his warm-up, going back to my first question, is literally taking the driver out and swinging for the fences. And it typically means that the first two or three holes for him is way out of whack, way out of just left field, per se, with where everything's going. And he fails to get a good tempo, a good rhythm to his game, uh, you can hurt yourself. I've seen people hurt themselves swinging (laughs) just more so than they're capable of doing for the sake of just seeing how far they can swing it, whether it's wrenching their back, pulling a hamstring. I've seen a shoulder go out of whack literally just to get dislocated several years ago. It's not in your best interest, but I'll I'll tell a quick story about Davis Love and his father, Davis Love Jr. 
Uh, it's been written about in many different books where Davis, and I, I actually met Davis in college, and he could hit a lot of ball and a persimmon driver had miles. It, it's just incredible how far he could hit it. And it's well documented that his father would teach him there's no need to swing it 100%. You've got to save some energy in your brain to be mm -hmm. able to digest and understand what you did. And what if you do need a little bit extra? Where is that extra energy going to come from? Because biophysics or physics in general say we only have 100% worth of energy. So he was taught mm -hmm. to swing at 80%. And within a few weeks was just laser down the middle and wins his first event at Harbor Town, which is arguably one of the narrowest golf courses you'll play anywhere. And right. came back to his father and basically said, you know what, I didn't need 100%. All I needed was 80, and it was rare that he took out his driver. And I think the moral mm -hmm. to the story is at 80%, not only do you have a little bit extra if you need it and your brain has some energy to understand what you did, you stay in a better rhythm, you stay in a better tempo, and most importantly, you eliminate the tension that's needed to swing that fast and still not fall over. When you're that stiff, when you have that much tension, you're actually slowing things down. You are, you're, you're handling the club in such a tight way that there's no way for your body to release the levers in the proper timing to create the potential energy, the potential speed that you would gain, believe it or not, it's swinging 60%. There's been some experiments and studies out there that prove it. Bottom line is real simple. If you're really trying to swing that hard all the time, do you have any energy left if you really needed something more? Are you smart enough to put another club in your hand? You can't with driver unless you're going to go get another one that's got two degrees of loft on it or something. But more importantly, do you have enough energy to be able to think smart enough to realize, wow, if I swing smooth, that in fact will create the fastness I'm looking for, and there's no need to be swinging so hard. Yeah, those are some great points, and, and what a great story. Uh, Davis Love, of course, uh, has been a favorite on tour for many, many years because of that, that smooth, uh, you know, well-balanced swing that he's had, uh, very much like a Freddie Couples. Uh, as well was was also that way uh, you know they didn't have to step on it all the time uh, and I think the other thing too is people need to find their own uh, rhythm and tempo you know a, a lot of times I think and, and, and this is no fault of his but I think people misunderstood you know John Daly of course always talked about grip it and rip it and you know sort of swing for the fences but that was his natural uh, ability that was able to do that not everybody can do that um, you know, Nick Price comes to mind. He had a very, uh, you know, sort of a quick, uh, stabby-type swing when you compare it to others. But it wasn't that he was necessarily swinging any harder or faster than anybody. He just had a quick tempo. So I think people need to really understand that and find your own natural body rhythm. And what's Because if you try to force it, um, you know, I think Johnny would agree, is, is that's when you run into problems. You have to find what works for you. And, and certainly I think swing at 80% or even a little bit lower than that just to find it. And then once you find that, that body rhythm and tempo, uh, then you can certainly step it up a little bit, but as long as you're staying within balance. When you start to lose your balance, the issue uh, is when you're going to run into uh, some problems. So uh, some great advice there and a, and a great example as well. Um, Jim, this is one here. It's sort of a split as well. Um, we see this all the time. 
Um, a lot of pros have talked about this both at the teaching level and also on the tour. Uh, they see a lot of, in pro-ams, a lot of uh, their amateur partners gripping it too tightly. Um, there's a lot of factors involved here, obviously tension creeping in. Uh, but sometimes it, it can start off because they've got a poor grip. So maybe you could talk on the grip a little bit and then what are some of the, I guess, the, the causes of, of sort of gripping too tightly and, and what somebody can do, what are some suggestions to help people sort of be more relaxed and not just gripping it like they're about to, you know, bend a, a steel rod in half? Uh, yes, I, I would say grip pressure is one of uh, one of the biggest uh, detrimental things that people do in their in their golf swing uh everybody has this fear of that golf club coming out of their hands and failing down the fairway as you said in the opening i've been doing this for over 30 years and i don't know that i've ever seen a golf club go down the fairway when they've swung the golf club unless it was intended to in other words they (laughs) wanted to throw it down there uh right or their hands were wet either from sweat or rain uh, because naturally what happens in that golf swing is regardless of the amount of pressure you begin with, as you make the golf swing, that pressure will increase. So if you start lightly, it'll increase. If you start, let's call it medium firm, it'll get firmer. And even if you start what you may feel as firm as you can hold it, you'll still have some pressure that grip as you swing it it's just natural and what happens is is that grip gets too strong or too firm on the golf club there's too much tension in the arms up to the shoulders and into your chest and torso that the arms and the torso become too closely associated to each other and in the golf swing they each have a very different function the torso and the body is to go around while the arms are swinging the club up and down. And if they're too closely associated, as the arms are trying to go up and down, the body starts to rock and tilt in the back swing and or the through swing. Conversely, if there's too much tension and the arms are locked to the torso, the torso may be turning, but the arms are tagging right along with it, and they have a hard time swinging down to the ground. So we have to be very cognizant of that tension. Now, what I see happening often when they take their grip is the golf club gets up in the palm of the hands. And the more it's in the palm of the hands, it feels comfortable. It feels like I have a good, solid grip on the golf club. But again, in the palm, we don't use our hands and arms enough, and then it becomes a body action up and down and or around tied to the arms because the golf club is in the palms. That club, as a right-handed golfer, it should be just about where the fingers join the palm, and then the pad of the palm sits on top of the golf club, and the thumb is just across the side slightly, depending on their flight and how they're presenting the club face. That location of where that thumb, or we often reference a V between the thumb and index finger, where that might point, uh, that reference may change depending on how they're presenting the golf club. And the the trail hand, it's very much resting in the fingers with the lifeline of the trail hand resting upon the thumb of the lead hand. 
Uh, and that would be a, a general idea of the grip in how it's positioned on the golf club. And as I said, the V's between the thumb and index finger of both hands. If you were a new golfer, that might point as a right-handed golfer about to my right ear. And if they sliced it, they're presenting that club face a bit open to the path. Those V's may move a little bit more to the right as a right-handed golfer, more towards their right shoulder. Conversely, if that ball is curving a bit to the left, those V's may move slightly to the left. A good reference in terms of the pressure, if you start off with holding the golf club, about the same pressure that if you had the tube of toothpaste in your hand and the top was off, we'd like to hold that toothpaste so that toothpaste doesn't does not come out of it. So that would be a good uh, way to feel the right pressure to start. Uh, Mr. Sneed used to talk about holding a baby bird in his hands and not crushing them, so he would uh, hold it very lightly. Right, so lighter well pressure is better. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, we, we see this. You're exactly right. This is probably one of the most common uh, issues that we see, particularly with newer students, but even some of the, the, the guys that have been around for a while, I think they forget that, especially if they're not practicing enough. They get out there. Maybe they haven't played for a little while. And they forget about, uh, you know, the grip and they start, you know, knuckling down. You see the whites of their knuckles. I remember uh, Tom Watson used to talk about this sometimes uh, when he would be interviewed about playing in pro-ams. He would see, uh, you know, tension in their, in their forearms uh, and, and uh, sort of white knuckling that grip. And, and they would just be uh, hardly able to move in a lot of cases in, in comparison. So you definitely need to, a much more relaxed uh, grip. Uh, don't need to grip it so tight, as you mentioned, as you're swinging through. Uh, it's naturally going to uh, tighten a little bit more. Um, well said, and thank you, Jim. Um, John, here's here's one that, um, you know, I think that a lot of golfers have a problem with. You know, when they're on the practice tee and, or warming up, uh, a lot of times we'll see them putting down alignment rods and that, and they're getting their alignment uh, just right, and everything seems to go great, but then they get out in the golf course, and it, it's it's like watching uh, a, a contortionist. Uh, their feet are aimed one way, their knees, their, their, their hips, and then their upper bodies may be opened uh, for right-handed golfers uh, to their target line. So they're, they're twisted all in different directions. They just can't seem to get that alignment. Talk a little bit about that. We know the importance of obviously being aligned properly if you want to uh, hit on target. Uh, but what are some things they can do once they get to the course to really make sure that they are aligning properly because they don't have the tools that they do on the range? So that's a great question, something I harped on all my clients about regardless of their skill level, and it's the highest of skill levels, the slightest bit of off alignment or off aim contact can cause major disruption to a round. What I, the way I'm going to answer this is when you're using the alignment sticks, do you know how to use them and why you're using them? I think most people are putting them down with all great intentions to have an understanding of, okay, I'm going to this target or I'm going to that other target, but you're probably setting up the sticks wrong. You're probably not utilizing all of the practice area so you can understand the sticks and be able to see the sticks often enough to envision them when it counts, when you can't use them on the golf course. The, the real key to this starts with an education as to 
which stick use when do you use two sticks when do you use one what are they pointing at and that's something i'm constantly reminding particularly amateurs about because the biggest mistake i see is they'll take one stick they see the tour pros use one stick they put the ball on one side and they stand on the other and as as they aim the stick at the target they don't realize they're aiming off target because of where their bodies are in relation to the target. For a right-hander, typically you're aiming right of target, left-hander you're aiming left. So if you're going to use one stick and that stick is pointing at the target, the ball better be on the same side of the stick as you. And, And what you'll find is you'll see if you're squaring the leading edge of the club well enough all the time in a consistent manner. Using two sticks, the ball should be in the middle of the two sticks with the right stick for the right-hander, left stick for the left-hander, representing the target line, and that should be pointing dead at the target. That's the first thing is understanding how to use them and how to set them up. The second thing, which is critical, which I see nobody at public ranges doing, is standing behind the sticks in between each shot. You'll see them rake and hit all day long and then move their sticks around, not understanding where these sticks might be. If you've raked and hit and moved the stick, is it still in the same place you set it up to? But most importantly, being able to take what you're doing at the practice range to the golf course is a cycle, and that cycle begins and ends with your pre-shot routine. So it's very important that as you're using alignment sticks, when you're trying to get out of the mechanical mode and more into a merger and more into a simulation mode, that you are standing behind your shot, going through your pre-shot routine and seeing how these sticks aim and align to the target that you're intending to hit a shot to. And the more often you do that, the more often you'll be able to emblazon that image in your mind and envision that, that image under a pressure situation, very similar to the last scene of Bagger Vance, the movie Bagger Vance, where the computer-generated technology lights up the pathway of of Bagger's putt. You can envision that in your mind easily with alignment sticks. It doesn't matter what color they are, but if you're failing to stand behind the sticks to envision all this, yeah, you're going to go through contortions and everything else on the golf course to try to figure out where you're aiming. Understand it's a very simple process. Golf's not a not an easy game, but you tend to make it very complicated. The ease of making it simple is where the beauty of the game arrives to you. And, and the first thing, if you're trying to work on aim and alignment, is to understand where and how to use those sticks, why you're using those sticks, and then incorporate your pre-shot routine. Take some time, understand where these are envisionally pointing so you can pull up that vision when needed, most likely under the under the best and most intensive pressures is when you're going to need it. Yeah, and, and that's a, those are, uh, again, some great points. You know, uh, I, I, like you, see a lot of people on, on, the, on the range using – alignment sticks or other tools that they've, they've gotten, which are great tools. Uh, but if they're not used properly, um, then it's for not. And, and again, I agree with you. What a lot of people don't realize too um, is, you know, as you pointed out, you know, standing behind and really making sure that they're lined up where you need them to be 
um, especially in between shots. A lot of times we'll see him, uh, you know, swing and hit the ball, and maybe the club kicks the one of the, you know, one of the the alignment sticks, and they just sort of manually rake it back to what they think, but they don't actually stand behind to make sure that they pulled it back into the proper position. So it may be a few degrees open or a few degrees close to the target line that they uh, had intended. So now all of a sudden they're getting up to the next shot and they're not actually aiming in the same direction or the same place uh, that they were the first shot. So uh, great points that you, uh, you raise on that. And I think, you know, again, drawing on those visuals when you're out in the golf course and you don't have those uh, training aids with you or those alignment sticks, what have you, um, is very important. So it's good to set up properly to make sure they're using them correctly and then create those visual patterns so that when you get out in the golf course, you've got that to draw from. Um, great, uh, great points, John. Um, Jim, this is one, too, that we see uh, a lot of, um, especially our amateur golfers, we see this a lot in, in bunker shots, but even in short little pitch shots where um, there's no acceleration uh, or very little acceleration. They wind up uh, thinking that uh, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a swing that typically would be sort of halfway back and halfway through, uh, but instead, they're going three quarters of the way back, and then somewhere in the downswing, they realize, well, I've gone too far back, and now they decelerate. So what do we do in a case like this? How do we help golfers that don't get the proper acceleration through the ball? Well, I see uh, acceleration has a lot to do with uh, how the body rotates to the finish of the golf shot. Uh, and even in the short game, uh, small chip shots, uh, pitch shots, it's, uh, it's very important for that body to rotate through to face towards the target. And that accomplishes a couple things. One, it keeps that club moving in a positive manner through the ball. And two, it gives the club a place to go as it goes through the shot. Oftentimes, as you described, the backswing gets too long, and in a fear of sending it too far over the green, uh, they kind of stop the body and kind of rock underneath it and kind of hold back in, in the arm action swinging through. Uh, so twofold here, as I mentioned about the body turning through helps to accelerate it, but also learning to uh, identify how far back that golf club can go. And taking off from the idea of, uh, of uh, alignment sticks, you can work on a certain distance uh, chip shot or a pitch shot and actually stick the alignment stick in the ground uh, behind your uh, in your backswing area and angle it such that if you excuse me as you make the backswing you need to stay short of striking that stick and rehearse that and then go ahead and give it a hit and see if you can in fact finish similar in distance as you went in the backswing. So you could actually use two sticks in doing that. Uh, so the way the stick would be put in the ground as a right-handed golfer, you would stick it, say, just behind your heels, and it would be angled towards the target line so that as you made the backswing, it may run into it, let's say, halfway back, and then have one the same way on the through swing, and we'd stop it for that. Um, but, again, the critical ingredient of getting that club to accelerate through is to provide the room for it to go to the finish by turning the body, your hips, to face the target. 
Well said. Um, again, some some great uh, points, Jim. You know, we see this a lot, and again, obviously our higher handicap golfers, um, and it all boils down to really not practicing uh, enough and not really understanding. They get out there, they're excited to practice their full swing. Um, we see a lot of this sort of deceleration or lack of acceleration uh, in, in the, you know, the short game particularly uh, or in, in the bunker shots um, where they sense that they've, you know, uh, taken an aggressive backswing and now they're trying to, sort of slow the momentum down and don't end up actually accelerating through. And obviously as a result in a bunker, uh, the ball doesn't go anywhere. It just sort of stays there, maybe moves a few inches ahead, or they just thump underneath the sand and, and the ball goes nowhere. So um, great points. And again, I think people need to pay attention to what they're doing there and their practice. And this is where uh, like yourself and like John uh, or myself is to understand some of these very simple principles uh, and how to become a better player. And I think if, you know, if you're just sort of going out there willy-nilly and doing whatever, um, you're not going to learn uh, some of this skill set. John, here's one that we see. It's, it's always fun to, uh, to shoot for the flag, um, especially for the better players, but we see a lot of our uh, high-handicap golfers doing that, playing a little bit too aggressive uh, for their ability. How do, we, how do we tamp that down a little bit? First is understanding what your skills can and can't do. Uh, if you hit in the fade and you're trying to hit it to a, assuming you're right-handed and you're trying to hit it to a tuck back left pin, are you really going to hit that pin or are you going to bring all the trouble left of that pin into play if you don't hit the fade you're looking for? Uh, vice versa for a tucked right pin. Uh, I'll tell a quick story. I had a junior golfer about 20-plus years ago who was very aggressive pin pin hunting is what we called it. And mm-hmm. I took him out one Saturday and put a can of Coca-Cola in the middle of the green, and I had a tape measure with me, and I asked the young man to go to the extreme edges of, of the green to where he felt like it was still a quote-unquote legal hole placement for the hole to be, and let's measure it. And what we found was he never had more than a 30-foot putt. And we did this over the course of all 18 holes that we were regularly practicing on, and the light bulb finally went off that, hey, if I, if I go for the middle of the green, regardless of my skill, I'm always going to leave myself with a very simplistic putt of 30, maybe 35 feet, and I have a chance to par, bogey, whatever it is. Where, when you're doing that, you're eliminating having to put pressure on your putting and put, putting pressure on your short game. So he, he thinks about it. He decides, eh, let me try it. He does it for a couple of practice rounds, and he goes to an IJGT event. Uh, it was a major event at the time. It was a three-round event and proceeded to break 70, and he had never broken 80 in a tournament. He broke 70 all three rounds, and he directly attributed it to a new strategy. I'm just going to hit the middle of the greens. He played a predominant fade at the time, and the tucked right-hand pins, if he happened to hit a little bit more fade than normal, he was a lot closer to the hole, gave him an even better birdie chance. But he never, ever was out of any hole. And if he was anything, he was a little long or a little short that day, He was, or those three days, he was rarely wide of any pin placement. And I think it's a great, uh, a great example 
of when you're an amateur and you're struggling to hit more greens, which, by the way, is the statistic directly involved with lowering scores. So you can hit it as long as you want. You can do all these other things. But if you're not hitting greens in regulation, you've got no chance of making a, a lower score. When you're in that middle skill level, if you're at a plateau of your scoring, look to be hitting middle of the green. You'll see tour players do this on very, very hard golf courses with hard green complexes. You'll see the elite amateurs, particularly under, say, a very stressful match play condition, unless the pin sets up for them, they're going for the middle of the green because it's important to be on that green first and put the pressure on your opponent. It's, there's a lot of study, a lot of facts out there that holds this strategy true. And I just got done uh, posting a video about this the other day as far as trying to learn to make par. A lot of it is let's just hit the middle of the green to give yourself an opportunity of a two-putt for par. Forget about the birdies. Just put it in the middle. Quit your pin hunting. Try it. Try it a couple rounds. I think you're going to surprise yourself when you do that. Yeah, and, and, and I think, too, really, John, it, it, it comes down to really uh, how you're going to manage yourself on the golf course. Um, you know, obviously, as your junior player, uh, you know, was obviously uh, able to, to strike the ball well, um, but it was a matter of changing his strategy. And uh, when he did, obviously, it, 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 you know, bore him a tremendous amount of success. And I think it boils down to how, how you handle yourself out in the golf course. You know, you have to put some thought into things. Don't just get up there and... And, and swing uh, and, and hit the golf shot, um, you need to put some thought into it. And, you know, to, to you know, make foolish judgment calls and, and going and attacking pins, yeah, it seems like a lot of fun. And if you happen to pull it off, yeah, it's great. But, uh, again, it goes to what we talked uh, several weeks ago, uh, or actually might have been a couple of months ago when the two of you were on, we were talking about sort of covering the percentage of likelihood of success that you're going to uh, succeed in getting that shot. So if you're you know, as you pointed out, you know, if you're hitting a fade and you've got a, a pin that's tucked tight left, um, the odds of you getting close to that pin are, are slim and, and maybe none, uh, even for some of the better players. So you have to really stop and think about that. And you have to sort of weigh out the percentages of what's the likelihood am I going to be successful in that particular shot and, and then weigh the pros and cons. And you can do it relatively quickly um, without, you know, taking a lot of time, but you have to put that in. Uh, and, and obviously in this particular case, uh, in the example you gave, uh, it served him very well in, in, in shooting uh, three great rounds. So, um, you know, it, it can be done. It's just a matter of, of you know, using the old uh, noggin there. Um, Jim, this is uh, an area sort of, uh, sort of the opposite, I guess, to uh, a little bit to the acceleration point that we talked or that you talked about a few minutes ago. And we see this a lot in, in – in again, certain amateurs, there's there's a couple of options here. Um, sometimes with our older golfers that can't make a full shoulder turn. Sometimes uh, it's the fact that they're kind of making a short, stabby little backswing and then trying to follow through. So if they're lacking in a full shoulder turn, what are some options here? What should they be doing here to make sure that they're getting the most out of their backswing? Well, I think the the critical thing here is to understand that the shoulder turn and the arm swing need to be proportionate to each other. For example, if I make a full shoulder turn where let's say that I turn and my shoulder line is now 
90 degrees to the target line, my arms can be up and over my shoulder and pointed down the target line and maybe parallel to the ground. If I only turn my shoulders, let's say, 45 degrees, now my arms may not reach above my shoulder. They may look uh, more similar to what we see with the John Rom, uh, where the arms are a little bit lower and, and not as long. And uh, so they're proportionate to the rotation. And then if we have a very small backswing, the sequence of transition from the end of the backswing to make the downswing, we need to be sure that the arms and the body are sequential correct. In other words, mm -hmm. the body's making room for the arms to swing down. We have to be sure that the arms are swinging down as the body's making the room. In other words, we're not going to have the body leap forward and then the arms are, are lagging behind, just as we wouldn't want the arms ahead of the body in the downswing. So when that golf swing gets a little bit shorter, a great way to get the sequencing down uh, in order is to give themselves a little bit of a pause and then feel that the arms and the hips are starting essentially at the same time. And then they'll transition through the strike and on to the finish in the right sequence. Again, well said. Um, John, I think you could probably even piggyback a little bit on, on what uh, uh, Jim has just uh, laid out uh, with this last one here and, and really swinging over the top. There's obviously a number of issues uh, that need to be addressed here. So why don't you walk us through this? Um, we see a lot of our amateur golfers out there that uh, come over the top, if you will. What are some of the causes of that and how do we uh, help them avoid that? To me, there's three main causes to that. Number one is your body's not capable of swinging from the inside. It's not that you're deficient. It's not that you're impaired so much as the way you've built your body prevents you from being able to pull the club from the inside. The only way for it to go is from the outside in. Number two, a very dominant lower hand. In the right-hander's case, the right hand, when that right hand is just super dominant, and the left hand is not playing an active part, an equal part in the swing, it's almost impossible to straighten out that plane. But I think the third one is the biggest cause. When you're aiming close to your target, your brain's having to figure out from point A to point B, how do I get the ball there? And it's going to require a change of path from the club working outside to in. When you combine all three of these things, maybe you're big-chested, you lift a lot of weights uh, from a fitness standpoint of view, or your, your job requires you to be lifting a lot of things and you have a big chest and rounded shoulders, then you're aiming so far right as well as you're totally dominant with your right hand. Uh, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster. And we have to fix it one thing, one element at a time starting with alignment, there's, it's tough to teach that right hand new tricks if it's not in the position for that trick to work. And then as far as changing your body, morphing your body and 
to a position to be able to not come over the top to square your path up a little bit is going to require a lifestyle change in a lot of in a lot of situations, whether it's a change of job, uh, you're going to the fitness center more often to try to stretch your pecs out a little bit, put more rotation, more mobility and flexibility in your shoulders. It's going to require a long time. The, the easiest way, the simplest and the fastest way is to get your alignment where it should be, which is parallel left for the right-hander, parallel right for the left-hander, to give that right hand a chance to understand what direction should it be swinging in and how to release the club, but most importantly, when. Because when, you're, when your body's not in the position or in made to be able to come into out and then you're exacerbating the issue by clo- being close to your target, that bottom hand has no other choice but to reroute. So go for the alignment fix first. Then start teaching your right hand some new tricks. There's a lot of great drills to teach that dominant hand new tricks while you're teaching the forward arm, the forward hand, the left hand for the right hand or the right hand for the left hander, what their true role, R-O-L-E, is within the golf swing. Again, well said. Um, great discussion tonight, guys. And, you know, if, if I was listening to this show, I might ask myself, you know, so what can I do to maybe avoid some of the issues that were discussed tonight in the, uh, the panel discussion? And, and here's a way that I think um, for a lot of you listeners out there that really want to improve, and that is to come join us this fall at the Golf Tip Magazine three-day golf school retreat. It's being held at the beautiful McLemore Resort atop Lookout Mountain in Georgia. Uh, join us to experience world-class golf instruction with three of Golf Tips Magazine's top 25 instructors, and two of them you've heard uh, this evening. They're going to be there. Uh, the dates are October 27th to the 29th. So if you're interested and you want to really improve your game, we're going we're gonna to test your mettle, if you will, uh, on those three days, and uh, you definitely want to come out and enjoy us. It's a very beautiful resort, uh, again, atop Lookout Mountain up in Georgia, uh, elevation is about 2,200 feet at point, and uh, it's just a beautiful view, a great golf course, and a lot of other great amenities there, and we're going to have a lot of fun at this uh, three-day golf school retreat. So if you want to join and you want to come out and improve your game and work with some of the best in the business, you can email me at editor.golftipsmag at gmail.com, or you can give me a call at 850-238-6130. I'm happy to have a discussion and get you started uh, to becoming a better player. Guys, you guys did a phenomenal job with tonight's discussion. I want to thank you, and I'm excited about our upcoming uh, golf school retreat uh, coming up this fall at McLemore. Uh, John, I know you've been up there quite a bit over the last couple of years, and I know that you can uh, uh, um, certainly shed a lot of light as to what the experience is going to be. If you want to say a few words, uh, by all means, go ahead. Had to take myself off mute there. Sure, it's it's yes. <laughs> the, the way the way I would explain it is the pictures that are used by myself and other people who are associated with Macklemore do not do it justice. You, you have to go. You have to experience. You have to see. Uh, just today, one of the realtors put up uh, an image of a rainbow over Macklemore Cove. And I've actually seen that rainbow live, and, and the picture is wonderful. But being there and seeing it in 
weather that's very hospitable. Uh, they shared what the weather was. Today it was 78 degrees there today. Uh, wow. So it, it's a wonderful place. It, it's enjoyable whether you're a golfer or not. As far as the golf schools, it, you can't go wrong going to a place like Macklemore and improving yourself, not only from a golf skill standpoint of view, I think you'll get the rest, relaxation, the calmness, the sereneness you need to recharge your batteries in a lot of different ways there. Jim is going to be joining us up there as well. And also our third uh, Golf Tips Magazine Top 25, John Decker, is also going to be there. So you're going to be learning from three of the best in the business. So you definitely want to enjoy us, uh, and join us, if you will, at Macklemore. Uh, the dates, again, are October 27th to the 29th. Reach out to me uh, as soon as possible, editor.golftipsmag at gmail.com. Or, again, I'm happy to speak with you live on phone, 850-238-6130. Again, uh, Golf Tips three-day golf school retreat uh, coming this fall. The weather is, is going to still be uh, beautiful up there. A lot of changing of the season, of course. Uh, so be very picturesque. A lot of great pictures you can take while you're there. But more importantly, you're going to learn some, some uh, great uh, instructions, some great tips on some of the things that we were talking about tonight. And you're going to be able to play some great golf uh, at uh, Macklemore as well. So come and join us. Um, guys, again, thank you as always for, for bringing your best to uh, the Coach's Corner panel. And uh, as always, I'm going to give you guys a moment or two to uh, plug anything that you want and let the folks know how they can uh, reach out to you. So, John, go ahead, and then Jim. Sure. Thanks, as always, uh, Ted. It's it's always uh, an honor for me to be on, and i got to apologize for missing my last opportunity. I had a situation that couldn't be avoided, and I appreciate your patience with that, Jim. Known you for a long time, and, and I enjoy the insight you provide. Uh, it's obvious that we share a lot of the same mentors in our past with Golf Digest schools, and it's fun to hear, hear you regurgitate some of those words from some of those people. Sometimes everybody can contact me very simply, John Hughes Golf. Whether you put a hashtag, an ampersign, uh, uh, dot com at the end, whatever it is, that's how you can reach me. And I have just seven dates left for you to experience a one-to-one golf school at Macklemore, uh, the end of September and through October. Those are, I'm anticipating, will sell out by the end of the month. So if you're interested in a one-to-one situation, a one-to-one learning experience with me, Contact me at John at John Hughes Golf. I'll give you all the information. Look forward to seeing everyone there. Fantastic. And Jim, go ahead. Well, Ted, as always, it's uh, it's great to be on the show. And and John, I always enjoy our time together on on the show, and and also talking outside of the show and and getting better together, uh, bouncing ideas off each other as to how we get ourselves better at our craft. And I'm so looking forward to the golf school at Macklemore here at the end of October and being able to be on the lesson piece side-by-side with you as well as John Decker. Uh, If anybody would like to reach out to me, I can be reached at jim at endicottgolf.com or at my phone number, 407-460-9420. That's Jim at IndicottGolf.com or 407-460-9400. And thanks again, Ted, for having me on.
Oh, I appreciate it, guys. And thank you for always uh, uh, giving of your time. And uh, I look forward to seeing both of you uh, at McLemore. I know you'll be on uh, the Coach's Corner panel before then, but uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, the golf school uh, coming up in a, in a few months' time. But uh, thanks, guys. Have a great uh, rest of uh, your evening and weekend. And thank you for joining me tonight on the panel. And I'll talk to you guys real soon. That was uh, John Hughes and John or, uh, Jim Endicott, sorry, uh, joining on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, when we come back, I'll be joined by my very special guest this evening, Robert Shorney, uh, owner of Nassau Golf and the president of Nassau Precision Casting. Uh, we'll be right back after this brief message from Golf Tips Magazine. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple to follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today. All right, welcome back. And don't forget to subscribe to Golf Tips uh, Magazine. Uh, it's a great publication, uh, available in both print and digital format. So if you're wanting to get it in both, uh, you can certainly subscribe. Go to golftipsmag.com, and you can either subscribe for uh, simply the print if you prefer to have it in your hot little hands, or if you're a little bit more tech-savvy and you enjoy and prefer uh, a digital version, uh, that's available as well. You can uh, take out a subscription and get the digital version, or you can do, actually do both. Some people like to do that. Uh, have a hard copy, if you will, of the magazine at home, and then have access to a digital version when they're on the road traveling, whether it be for vacation or otherwise. So uh, go to golftipsmag.com and uh, subscribe today. All right, I'm very excited to have uh, my very special guest this evening, Robert Shorney. Uh, he is the uh, owner, as I mentioned, of Nassau Golf and also the president of Nassau Precision Casting Company. Uh, he is an expert in golf club design. Uh, and uh, grip manufacturing and shaft technology. He has invented and patented several breakthrough products in the golf industry, including revolutionary iron and wood technology. Uh, his clubs have been featured by AT&T Sports, uh, Science and Technology on ABC, uh, also on ESPN, Hale Irwin's Golfing America, and uh, The Rob Report, Japan's leading golf publication, Alba Magazine, as the inventor of the revolutionary cavity back woods and locally on News 12, Long Island. Uh, as well as uh, several uh, publications, Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, of course, Golf, other leading publications around the world. So please welcome my very special guest this evening, Robert Chorney. Good evening, Robert. How are you? Very good. Thank you for the beautiful introduction, Ted, and it's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure to uh, to have you. and. I actually had to edit it down a little bit because there were so many other things I could add it on. We would have spent up most of the hour uh, just going over all of the accolades and, and things like that. So forgive me for not getting everything that's, in there, but I got as much as I could. <laughs> that's quite all right. That's quite all right, my friend, and uh, it's a pleasure. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, we're gonna Before we get into uh, you know talking about some of the, the, the different products and, and just a little bit what? about um, uh, Nassau, um, 
talk about when your first recollection, when did you first get introduced, not in, in the business per se, but just as a golfer, what was your earlier, uh, earliest memories of playing this game and, and really being introduced? How did that sort of come about for you? Well, it was actually through my dad. Uh, my dad was a really great golfer, just to give you a little background. He was a scratch player, and in those years, if you remember Golden's Mustard, they were going to sponsor him to go on tour. I don't even know if I was born back then, but I have a brother and sister, and my mom says, you're not going anywhere. So then they were grooming him to play against Jackie Gleason, but Jackie Gleason was a big drinker and so forth. But my dad was a great player in his day, and then he was also a great musician, but he went into manufacturing. Right. So as far as your question, I got introduced to the game from my dad, and my dad taught me since I was a young person, but I was also a baseball player. But I always loved golf, and uh he taught me, and then I kept uh, as far as being my game, and I learned a lot from my dad in every aspect of golf and in life, and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So I miss my dad, and he was the one that taught yeah. me the game. Yeah, uh, same here. I uh, uh, came up very similar to you in, in a sense that my father uh, introduced me, uh, my earliest memories to, to the game of golf, and I've uh, been bitten by the bug ever since, uh, uh, both good and bad times. Obviously, some good times on the golf course and sometimes not so good over the years, but uh, obviously uh, it's, a, it's a great game. And let me ask you just one other question just sort of related to that. You mentioned, you know, baseball uh, was, a, was another sport. Did you find, um, even though they're, they're vastly different sports, did you find your athleticism in baseball helped with your golf game as well? Well, I think as an athlete, it all helps. You might not want to play, let's say, play a baseball game and then go right into hitting the ball. Uh, But it is a very similar swing, in fact, because it's actually the same type of move of the body on just a different plane. So it definitely helps. Yeah, I think a lot of players, and, you know, and I think this is why, you know, from a junior golfer's perspective, a lot of parents are being encouraged to allow their, their, you know, junior players' activities, other sports as well, not just golf. I mean, obviously, golf may be their passion, uh, but I think it's good to have a, sort of a well-rounded uh, exposure to other sports uh, and other games because I think that is only going to serve to help them uh, in the long run. So very interesting. always like to hear from my guests uh, some of their earliest memories of, of playing and how they got introduced to the game. Uh, everybody's story is a little bit different, but... Uh, I think we're all heading in the same direction that to become a little bit better out in the golf course. Um, but uh, exactly. thank you I for, told, uh, Rob. I told him. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah, you for I'm sharing sorry. that. Yes. So let's talk about. Uh, You're quite welcome. Yes. Let's talk about a little bit earlier um, in manufacturing. Um, I, I know that obviously you're. Uh, you run uh, and own the uh, Nassau Precision Casting Company. We're going to get into some of that as well. Um, but. Going back, and some people, maybe some of our younger audience that may be listening, some of the older ones are going to understand what we're going to talk about here. But some of the younger ones may not be familiar with uh, uh, persimmon woods and that. But uh, talk about some of the earlier recollection of, of, of the wood head and, and sort of the, the customization and how that went about. Because a lot of people that aren't uh, are that new to the game, especially in the last few years, that never played before, may not be, uh, be familiar. And that was something that you started very early on. 
was when the wood uh, persimmon woods were out in the market. So talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, as I said, my dad was a real craftsman, and we made automated machinery. We actually got from the Mississippi Delta area, persimmon woods. We turned our own woods. We crafted our own woods. My dad made automated uh, machinery to make perfect bulge roll and scoring. The bulge is from heel to toe, if the listeners don't understand that, and the roll is from top to bottom. So um, the customization of a wood, it's really a phenomenal uh, piece of wood to work with. And then when you mm-hmm. craft it for the golfer, you could customize it as far as bore it, precision bore it. You could bore it to any angle a golfer needs. For face angle, you could make any roll and bulge. You could weight it as far as if someone slices or hooks or wants to hit straight because it had a sole plate and you could, mm-hmm. before you assemble and so forth, so you could really customize a persimmon wood. You could do the same with laminated, but laminated has more glue and so forth, and it's different laminations. Uh, uh, we like to work mostly with persimmon. We did make laminate for some companies, but uh, we crafted a lot of woods for Touring Pros, Hal Sutton, Bobby Clampett, Clarence Rose, Tony Sutter, Roger Maltby, 59 Touring Pros. Used our uh, Collector's Classic Tour Edition persimmon driver, and it was really phenomenal. Myself, my dad made me my first persimmon driver. I would not go to a metal wood until, until we came out with the cavity back wood technology. The, the persimmon drivers were phenomenal, and you really controlled it well. You could hit it well and so forth. And in some respects, uh, it would be nice to see the players nowadays use some persimmon and see what it could do. Yeah, it's amazing. It always had a very... Um I would classify it as a sweet sound. I mean, you know, the the, the right. especially the drivers today uh, have. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, they're they're very expensive to produce and and stuff, and the technology is is you know uh, very advanced. But you know, I, I don't know. There was just something about that sort of a sweet sound, if you will, when you hit it flush uh, with the persimmon. And uh, I think a lot of the players that you mentioned, and I'm sure many others that have played persimmon. Uh, and I would strongly encourage, uh, you know, somebody to uh, do a little research. And if you've, you know, never hit one, uh, you know, get yourself one or go somewhere that uh, that uh, you can hit some or find someone that's got one and uh, take a few swings with that. And I think you'll find it very interesting. So it, it's a, it, it's a, it, you know, I, I prefer, um, you know, I, I mean, I like obviously some of the, the new stuff that's out in the market, but uh, it was always very interesting. Right. Uh, the, the wood heads uh, from uh, you know from a few decades back, and uh, it's too bad that they've taken Absolutely. that. I think it would be make it, yeah. I think it would be interesting on uh, on the tour to see that uh, come back, even in some events. They don't have to do it all the way around, but maybe just have some special events where the, the pros have to go back to a little bit older uh, way of, of playing the game. Uh, now, you also mentioned uh, we want to talk about iron head casting and manufacturing as well. Uh, that's something else you explain for people that don't understand what that is first off, and then talk about some of the things that you guys did. Right. Well, iron head uh, casting is precision casting, which is investment casting loss wax process. You you make a tool, you inject the wax, you dip and coat, and then I go through the whole process. But ultimately, you get exactly what your pattern is in a casting, 
and then you hold it mm-hmm. within five thousandths of an inch. So it's very precise, the casting process. It's not like a forging where you have to do a lot of machining, even though they talk about forging. It's come to the past, like 30 years ago, they talked about forging versus casting and casting versus forging. And I believe they blindfolded Raymond Floyd and he hit it and he said, well, that's the casting and it was the forging. And, you know, he hit the forging and he said that was the casting. So he didn't really know blindfolded. So you could anneal uh, the material and make it as soft or as hard as you want to a certain degree. So we do casting and uh, you can make virtually any design and weight. The weight distribution, I always believe, is what makes the product and how it's to the ball, the shaft gets you back into the ball, and it's up to the head to keep it stable. So the question you asked about casting, you could virtually produce uh, many different designs, many different companies came to us to make heads, and then uh, as far as then we also had the division to sell to the custom club maker, our own designs and so forth. So it's very interesting, the whole history of that. And then also casting is the way they do uh, the titanium woods or the steel woods mm-hmm. or the hybrids right. is all cast. Mm-hmm. So when they talk about forging and so forth or casting, well, they're still hitting cast pieces even if they're using forge irons or cast irons. Mm-hmm. They're using castings in the metal woods that they're using or the hybrids they're using. Right. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And. You know, I just wanted to, because, you know, there's a lot of people that are new to the game that don't really understand the differences. And it's interesting, uh, again, as as the game has continued to progress over, uh, you know, the last several decades, just how things have changed. Uh, another area, too, that uh, I want you to talk about, and this is uh, about shafts. Um, you, you're um, going to talk a little bit about the True Tone shaft development. So talk about that, because that's another area that a lot of people don't really understand too much. Right, because the shafts that uh, you could get for, let's say, $10, the shafts you get for $500. What you want out of a golf shaft is when you swing it for the shaft to recover and get you back to the ball. There's been many articles written, and some people say the shaft is the engine. Some people say something else is. But in reality, if you look at the way the golf club moves in motion, whether you have a steel shaft or a graphite shaft, carbon fiber shaft, you want that shaft to recover and get you back to the ball, all right? And then it's up to the head to keep it stable. So if it gets you back to the ball with the head square, and then upon impact, it's all up to the head what's going to happen. As far as if it hits the head, it wants to rotate around its center mass. And that's why you see the best players in the world sometimes, even with the best club supposedly made, that they hit it three fairways over. Why does that happen? because there's movement within the head. It's rotating around the center of mass. They slightly mishit the ball, even though things are advertised that this is the best or that's the best, and it's always going to go straight. It doesn't. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. And, yeah, and that's uh, that, that alone we could probably do in a whole other show. But, um, yeah, there, there's exactly. a lot of things, that uh, misconceptions that, that the, the general public don't understand. And that's why it's good to have somebody like yourself that's out there that you know, uh, doesn't just understand the game, but actually, uh, you know, is, is a club uh, fitter as well as a pro in, in golf instruction. So you understand um, from both sides of the game, really, or all sides of the game, uh, how the equipment needs to be put together. Um, you talked about metal wood development and, and uh, the differences, obviously, uh, as we progress through. Um, talk about the cavity back 
uh, wood. Uh, this is something that you're uh, well known for, and I found this very, very interesting. A lot of people may not uh, understand this, so can you share some, some thoughts on that? Sure. Well, I look, uh, I'm very analytical as far as what I'm looking at something to improve it. We're not necessarily looking to spray something nice and say this is the best club in the world. It really function makes it the best club. So what I noticed with the metal woods that were out there, that was a lot of twisting that was happening. We very expensive equipment at 8,000 frames a second to see what happens upon impact. And then I said, you know, we did it with irons, that you make a cavity back for a reason in an iron, that you mm-hmm. redistribute weight. So you hit it off the toe, you hit it off the heel, you get better results. And I took useless weight out of the center back section, and I redistributed the weight forward and out towards the toe and heel. What that does is it creates a higher polar moment of inertia. What that means is it resists the twisting that occurs upon impact and projects the ball longer. It's not just me saying it. AT&T, when they were the monopoly of telephone, chose it as the finest club in the world, and they aired it during the PGA tournament, the Independence Insurance Agent Open, and then they surprised us two minutes before halftime. This is in 1991. Uh, New York Giant, Pittsburgh Steel game, two minutes before halftime. You and I couldn't buy it, not because of the money. They had it booked. Because they were a monopoly to telephone. They spent three quarters of a million dollars. I don't know if you remember Chris Schenkel from Wide World of Sports. He did the voiceover. Mm-hmm. IMG in the city did the production. And he said, what new development allows you to long and straighter? And they showed it. They independently tested it. They, they spoke to Lee Trevino, who uh, ordered some clubs. But, you know, then he signed with another company. He would not say anything bad about it. And then uh, Gabe Brewer used our driver on tour. In fact, he used our driver in irons. There's a lot of people that used the cavity back titanium. And then uh, they added it, and it was phenomenal. It was sold in Japan. It was sold in the United States. It was sold all over the world. But the answer is it was more stable upon impact. We proved out. And True Temper sent us a letter. It's on the website that they never sent in their history as far as the toe and heel shots were exceptional and outperformed every other club. But AT&T did their own, got the, it, did their own testing, and they chose it as the finest club in the world. It all comes down to weight distribution. And to this day, if I tell you, Ted, we could have any of the people listening could still hit that original cavity back, which is 30, over 30 years old, and it'll still be rock solid. It's not a big head in those days. It wasn't a big head. Rock solid. Then we came out with another version, which was the granddaddy cavity back, which was mm-hmm. slightly larger head at the time, also rock solid. And then we came out, when titanium came out, with the titanium cavity back, which we'll put against any club there is. But it's all based on weight distribution, what happens when the club head's coming into the ball, what happens when it makes contact with the ball. And when you hit it off the toe, the heel, and the center, center of any club should go good. But when you hit it off the toe and heel, the head wants to rotate. This didn't rotate at 8,000 frames a second, so it comes dead straight through. So that's what the cavity back would do. And then it took uh, yeah, it- many, many, over 20 years for one of the major companies to realize. Like when a lot of people make the big heads and they sent the weight back, and they say it has a higher moment of inertia. It's a little misleading to the average layman because you're not mm-hmm. taking the head and sticking a shaft straight through the middle of the head. There's a shaft axis. Right. 
So standard engineering principle, when you go ahead and move the weight weight back, it's further away from the shaft axis, so the head's going to twist. Does it get the ball up in the air more? Easy. It'll get the ball up in the air, but it's going to be twisting more. Because the yeah, center and- mass of that is trying to come through and close it down, but it's, uh, it's going to twist more. Right. Yeah, and what a great endorsement from AT&T as well. Uh, obviously, unexpected yeah. endorsement, but nevertheless, a great endorsement. And, and you know, it, the truth of the matter is, you know, the average golfer doesn't really understand. And, and you know, we see all kinds of marketing and, and things, and you know this as well. And I don't want to, you know, get into the, you know, the specifics as, you know, we'll be in the weeds for, for days. But, uh, right. you know, people don't understand. And, and this is where somebody like yourself that, that does, you know, gets right into the trenches with the manufacturing and understands, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, principles and, and so forth of how uh, the, the actual glove, uh, golf club actually works and how it's affected, um, you know, at impact. And, you know, we see, excuse me, all the time with a lot of our amateur golfers out there that, um, you know, hit it off the toe. I mean, it's great when you hit it off center. I mean, I, I don't think there's a club on the market that if you hit it, in the sweet spot that you're not going to get great results, but it happens when, you know, the ball moves up a little bit on the club face or a little bit back on the club face towards the shaft. Uh, that's where the real true test of, of the technology uh, rides. And, and certainly, you know, what's on the market right now is certainly gotten better over the years, but you're exactly right. Um, there are certain uh, principles, if you will, that, that still remain true today um, that the average layman person, as you mentioned, and um, I want Absolutely. to get you in, and let me just, yeah, let me just, before we move on, let me just uh, point this out because uh, you mentioned the, the website. Uh, I'm going to give the, the website information a little bit later in our discussion. The reason being is I don't want people to leave uh, and start uh, searching on this right now. I want them to uh, listen to more of, of our discussion, and then we'll give them the information. And all of the things that, that um, Robert and, and I are talking about tonight, the different products and things like that, you can see on his website, and uh, you can check out the products. And if you're interested uh, in, in purchasing anything, uh, obviously you can do that right there as well. Um, but uh, I, I want to move on to uh, the uh, CBI Tour Edition. Uh, these are your Nassau irons. Uh, this is very unique and different, uh, a little bit different design from what we typically see as well. So talk a little bit about that. Again, you've redistribu- redistributed excuse me, the weight. Um, and again, people will see that when they go on the, the site a little bit later, but talk about that as well. How did you come up with the design and, uh, how has that been effective for you? Well, that, uh, iron is the best iron we ever made as well as we'll put it against any iron to this day, as far as for feel, accuracy, distance, performance. And we have pros tell us the best club ever made. We go down to the PGA show. We always sell them to different pros that haven't used them, and they write us letters that they've used every top-level club, and this outperforms it. And like I said, Gabe Brewer used it. But why is the answer, What the question you asked? Once again, we look mm-hmm. at function. Uh, too many irons had a, a top line that was thick, too much weight towards the top of the golf club, and it's useless weight, and we proved that out. So we took and scalloped out the top of the golf club, and moved it down and out and created a higher polar moment of inertia again with the iron. And that we proved that wherever you hit on that face, it's much more stable versus any other club. And to this day, you could hit that club, and it feels different. I don't care if you spend $2,000 for a set of the best uh, 
most expensive clubs on the market, and we don't knock anybody. They're all well-made clubs, but we'll tell you there's a different feel and a different performance in that CBI third edition iron than any club has ever been made up to this day. It comes down yeah, to it's a very... taking useless weight and redistribute it where it belongs. It's a very interesting design. I've never seen anything like it. And again, the listeners, um, you'll get a, a chance in a little bit to to go and check everything out that that, that Robert's discussing here uh, on the program. But uh, I want you to, to listen to a little bit more. Talk us uh, now. This is another very interesting uh, product as well as the Sightmaster uh, wedges. Um, talk about that. This is a very interesting, uh, again, design. Talk about the, these wedges. What makes them unique and a little bit different than, than what we're seeing out in the market? All right. The Sightmaster wedges we've had out and patented uh, for many years. And the Sightmaster wedges at the bottom of the club has vertical lines because uh, what the previous two professionals that were on your show tonight did a nice job, and they even talked about mm-hmm. alignment. And everybody talks about alignment, but unfortunately, it's very difficult for most players to line the leading edge to the intended line of flight. So what I did is make the bottom scores vertical, so it's very easy to line up to the intended line of flight. It frames the club head way different than a horizontal score. There's horizontal scores above it, but below it is vertical scores. So you could actually draw those vertical lines out to one target or see if it's open or closed very rapidly yeah and and that's something that you know as, as you mentioned uh, on our panel discussion tonight uh, a lot of folks have problems is, is alignment they you know it's great when they're on the range and they've got all the tools and the gadgets to help them line up correct but as soon as they get out in the golf course and they put that club head down uh, it's amazing their body's moving all over it so it's nice to have uh, as you put it, uh, sort of a line of sight, if you will, of where I need to be and whether or not my club face is open or closed. So I think it's a very unique design. Again, uh, kudos to to you and and uh, and, and your team uh, for putting this together because I think it's uh, it's again uh, another win for for you guys. And obviously, um, I know it's uh, I'm sure been very successful. And it's obviously available in a variety of different degrees uh, as well. Correct? Yes. Yes, right hand and left hand, and right hand is available in 52, 56, 60, and 63 degrees. Left hand, 50, 55, 60, and 63 degrees. Well said. Here's the product. Um, you actually sent me one, and um, and I, I had never heard of this before uh, until, obviously, we, uh, you and I communicated now uh, a few years ago and you talked about this. You actually had reached out to me, um, uh, and, and uh, we actually had it in our gift guide uh, one year a few years ago, and that is the Six Finger Golf Club uh, Tour Edition, of course, it's named. But uh, this is a really unique thing, and, and again, I, I apologize to the audience. We uh, aren't able to, to show it here on the program, but uh, this is actually a, a, an incredible training uh, aid that you've put together, and if you want to just describe it a little bit, you've had a lot of people, including myself, uh, test this out and and work with it. And I got to be honest, it works. Um, it, it's another, again, another bullseye for for you. Talk about what what it is. It's not what my, people might think uh, when I say six fingers. Well, so why don't you give us a, a little bit better description? 
Sure, and I thank you for what you have said about it. And uh, as far as it's the opposite hand it's used for, so typically a right-handed golfer uses a left-handed glove, and a left-handed golfer uses a right-handed glove. With the six-finger tour-edition glove, a right hand uses a right-handed glove, and you have an extra finger stall for the lead left thumb, exactly the position where it belongs, easy for a beginner up to an advanced player, to set their hands in the proper position. And then it connects one's hands throughout the swing for solid shots. It's not just me saying it. Daryl Kessner, who's a famous pro in Long Island, right on the package, he gave us an endorsement. And Jason Bale, who's a famous Titleist pro, all right, and I believe the gentleman who won last week, uh, Jason Bale taught. Anyway, Jason Bale did a video you could see right on the site later on when you did the site, and what he said about it. And it actually, can, even good plays, it connects their hands throughout the swing. So a lot of players take it back and they separate their hands slightly, and it causes the club to go in a different direction and a loss of control. This is, as you said, is a training aid. So you can mm-hmm. play with it if you're not playing in tournaments to get a feel. It's all feel. But what I found when I, I did it for a reason, I was hitting balls at my facility, and I always taught if I'm a righty golfer to keep my left thumb in that crease and you don't have to, you could be soft, and you'll never lose the club. But I was hitting balls, and I was taking the club back with a little regrip and separating very slightly. So I went to the local shoemaker who I know, and I, we sewed up the first iteration, and then I designed more iterations, and that's what became the six-finger glove. But what it does very rapidly is within one or two days, you can get a feel that you could translate to the holding the club without it and perform better. Like Jason said, I love it. I can hit balls in it. That's his quote. Because it's not a molded grip like a a training grip that you have on a different club than you're playing with. This you actually play with with your own clubs, and it goes to one's brain very rapidly. I tell you, within a day or two, if you're hitting balls, you could take it off and replicate that same feel. Then you just refer back to it whenever you want or you want to keep practicing with it. It may feel different at the beginning because you're not used to the proper grip, but uh, it goes to one's brain very rapidly, and you, you start hitting much more consistently. And, and, you know, let me just add in there what I, what I found, uh, again, that was very unique about this, and a lot of people have problems, and, and as the guys talked about uh, or one of the guys talked about earlier tonight in the show, uh, about, uh, you know, the grip, how important that is. And this really helps people understand how to keep and work the hands together. They really work as a unit, even though they're, they're um, you know, you have two hands. Um, it helps to sort of get them to work together on the club. And training with it for just a little bit each time you go out to the range, uh, even if you, you know, use a, a standard glove uh, to play with, it just helps get you in the right position every time. Uh, you get your hands in the right position on the club every single time. And, it, again, that sort of memory, if you will, that, uh, you know, some people hate to use the, the term muscle memory, but, you know, you, you develop a memory uh, that you can recall on how that should feel. And every time you're not sure of that, you know, when you get back out, in, especially out in the practice team, and certainly you could, you could play with it as well, but... Um, you know, I, I think it's 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 a definitely a great t- a training aid, especially for 
some of our newer golfers out there that are just new to the game in the last few years and don't really understand, this is a great way to get you set up correctly each and every time. So, uh, again, another, uh, uh, you know, gold star I would add on to that. And I, I want to mention another product and get you to talk about as well, and that is the double barrel putter. Um, this was very unique. Sure. I, I, I'll, be on, I'll be honest, uh, you know, I, I, you had sent me several uh, images, and it was a very uh, unique uh, design. And when I got it, I, was, I, I thought to myself, well, it's a little bit, you know, the, the head itself is a little bit smaller than what we see out in the market right now. But I was very, very impressed with how accurate of a putter it was and actually how it felt. The head is, is got a good weight to it, and I really, really, it, it surprised me. It actually, I won't say it shocked me, but it surprised me because it was very deceiving at first glance. And talk about that because, uh, talk about first up a little bit of the design, and again, we're going to let people go to the website here in a little bit to, to see what we're talking about. But um, you designed this specifically this way, why? Because, once again, function, uh, just like years ago, 30-some-odd years ago, wrote an article, bigger doesn't make it better, better makes it better. And that was for mm-hmm. irons or woods and everything. So the putter, as you mentioned, and yes, I agree, a lot of people look at it and say, wow, it's a smaller head and so forth. But it, actually, there's such a thing called proprioception, and then it makes you fo- what makes one focus on the sweet spot then you look at the way the club head is built as far as the putter is face forward. So if you, one looks at Jack Nicholas, who's a good putter, always had his head behind the ball. I know you teach and a lot of pros and so forth, and many pros say keep one's head over the ball. I'm an advocate of keeping one's head and the eyes behind the ball so you get a better line. As far as you, he cocked his head, so a lot of amateurs, what I'm saying is lift their head and turn their head laterally, and they'll never find their line while they're putting. So this gets the face forward, and it doesn't have a line. It has an arrow, and you could actually mm-hmm. dial in the arrow to your intended line of flight. The face is forward. The face doesn't even touch the ground. It's built in a way that it's slightly off the ground based on the sole configuration, and it has perfect balance. So when you swing it back and forth, it wants to move straight. It, most putters people pick up in a shop, and I'm not knocking any putter. You could putt well with any putter if you're a good putter and you have a feel for that or that's the type of putter you use. But you look at tour pros, they struggle every day. Some days they putt, some days they can't putt, and the best players in the world. And there's a reason, all right, because without knowing, you never want something in your mind that you're fighting. And what happens is most of the putters – the toe wants to also, if you swing that putter back and forth, you hold the grip nice and loose in a shot, you'll see that the toe wants to open because it's rotating. Well, with this putter, it comes through back and forth straight. I'm not saying you have to putt straight back, straight through. What I'm saying is the face comes through square. It doesn't want to open. So there's a lot of features in that and the weight distribution and it's milled face and so perfectly milled face. So all the features lead to more consistent putting. I had at the PGA show, we sold out to pros, but we had uh, Clarissa Childs, who's a Legends Tour player down in South Carolina mm-hmm. and head of the Ladies Golf Association. I don't know if you know Clarissa. I have a video, and uh, unbelievable the way she's using it, and she putted with it, said unbelievable. And we have other pros. Daryl Kessner, his, some of his pros said 
he bought it for the shop, and he, they said he was using it for his putting lessons. In other words, to teach his pupils a certain way. So there's a lot built into the putter. Yes, it does look different, exactly what you said. You may say, well, it's small, but it's, it works better. So when you focus in, mm-hmm. and you hit the sweet spot more often. When you get a big one, gets a big putter. Bigger doesn't make it better. There's more room for miss hitting, and so forth. Yep. So as a golfer, if it's consistently making a good stroke, consistently hitting towards on the sweet spot, consistently aligning the putter towards one intended line of putt is very important, and so forth. So it's it's really a phenomenal putter. We make it righty left. Yeah. It- yeah, it's got very good weight distribution, I found. And, again, it, it, it actually forces you to focus more uh, on lining the putts up a little bit better and focusing on hitting that sweet spot. Um, and I found it to be um, – I enjoyed putting with it. And I've tried a lot of the different products that are out there. And, again, I'm not here to, to knock anything, but – um, again, it's very evident that there was a lot of thought that went in behind this, and you've obviously explained some of the reasons why. Um, but I think sometimes people need to, uh, you know, focus on what they're doing um, and not just assuming that the equipment's going to take care of it. You, you have to obviously pay attention to your game. And I think sometimes when you've got these, uh, you know, even same thing with some of the new drivers and things where they've, you know, increased the, uh, the size of the head, and it's, you know, supposedly more forgiving, and it is to a point. But, uh, again, <clears throat> people don't really focus on their fundamentals as much because they think the club's going to do all the work for them, and it's just not the case. So uh, I really like this putter. I think it's, uh, again, um, something that anybody can do. And if you want to become a better putter, uh, Nassau's Double Barrel Putter is definitely something you want to take a look at. And it's very well uh, appointed price-wise as well, uh, in line with, with many others on the market. But it's, it's definitely worth having a look at. Um, all right, we're going to save the best to last. Uh, I know this is one that we've uh, talked about a little bit over the last year or so. Um, I want you to talk about this. There's quite a bit to unpack here, so I'm going to give you as much time as you need to. And, again, um, for those listening to the program, uh, I'm going to give you the website here in just a moment as soon as Robert finishes talking about this last product um, to go in and check all of this stuff out, but particularly this one. I think you're really going to like it. But this is the Revolve Golf Bags. We've talked about uh, a tour edition, um, and it's a very unique golf bag, Very a lot of great features in it. Um, obviously, there's a lot of golf bags on the market, but this one really, I think, sets itself apart from um, most, if not all, of the competition. Talk about this. This is a unique uh, concept that you've come up with with this that I think would appeal to a wide range of golfers, so the floor is yours. Yes, I thank you. Uh, on the golf bag itself, uh, I have my friend and a partner in the golf bag, uh, Corey, and he came. He said, Robert, I need you to work on this because he felt wheels should go on a golf bag. So then I went to the machine shop and I made the first iteration because there's a lot that goes into the engineering of the base and how it functions. So to tell the listeners, what we have is a golf bag on wheels but it has a telescopic handle, and it's actually a carry bag on wheels. So what I mean by that is one could take the bag right from their automobile. If they're going to bring it to the clubhouse or they're going to go on a motorized cart, they could pop off the wheels in one second with quick disconnects. You press the button, 
the wheel and axle, which is attached, pops right off, and you place it on the cart. There's a place to put the straps through the bag, and it's on the cart. If you want to go ahead and wheel it all over the course, you wheel it, you push or pull all over the course, you get a fit of green, and the stand deploys on any terrain. And then when you put out and you put your club back in, you carry the bag with the dual harness across the green. People with a cart have to go around the green, and we all know that's a real pain. So this is a carry bag that you carry right across the green. You pull the handle back up, and you keep rolling. So we call it a one-in-everything bag. And we have a video on the site that shows every feature of the bag so people could really see what it does. But it's really a phenomenal thing, even for people that use carts or have, have trouble taking it a long distance from the parking lot to the cart. You could use it for so many different ways. Or if you're playing and it's cart path only, it's easy enough to take the whole bag instead of a couple of clubs because we know you take a couple of clubs and say, wow, I wish I had this other club. And then you could pop the wheels on, pop the wheels off whenever you need it. So it's really a phenomenal product. You there, Ted? The bag is made in three colors, and people could see the video, like I said, to see all the features. Oh, hey, I'm sorry. Uh, my apologies. I yeah. had my mute on. Um, so what, what I'm going to uh, let me just repeat very quickly. Um, so what I was going to say was uh, the website is nasagolf.com. It's N-A-S-S-A-U golf.com. And if you um, go on the website, all of the products that we talked about uh, tonight are there. Uh, and you can see some great images as well as great, um, uh, great videos. 
And uh, I just think it's, uh, it's um, you put a lot of thought and, and creativity in developing these products. And, um, you know, kudos to you and, and all of those at NASA for, for doing what you do. But um, any, any final thoughts or, or comments that you want to make and before we wrap up? I appreciate what you said, and it's a pleasure to be on your show, Ted, and you're a good man, and I respect you very much in the industry. Uh, just to let one other, them know one other thing that we're doing heavily now is we make the Edition grips on Long Island, and uh, we manufacture, we have a distributor, and we make for OEMs, and we're going to keep expanding and expanding, so we're doing well with the Edition grips as well. We blend our own materials, all made in USA. We make unique feels and uh, tight quality control, concentric grips, and perfect weight. But uh, as far as, like you said, they could see all the things we spoke about, even if they want to get a persimmon head to try, we're able to make a persimmon driver. So, But uh, any of the clubs that you mentioned or any of the training aids. There's other training aids that we make that we yep. use out on tour, like the target alignment system that uh, 69 PGA pros use. I had the list from Kissner and and uh, VJ Singh and you name it. I don't want to mention too many. We don't pay them, but they <laughs> didn't get paid either. They used it, all right? Just like our clubs, we never paid anyone to use our clubs, and many players use our clubs on tour. And they could... Call us at 516-867-8018. They could email us at nassaugolf1 at gmail.com. And as you said, they could look at everything on the site at www.nassaugolf.com. And if you want to schedule a golf lesson, you can contact uh, Robert directly uh, through his website. Yeah. And uh, there's lots of uh, – I mean, it – it's really a, a one uh, one size fits all uh, website. There's a little of something for everybody, as you mentioned. Not only the products that we talked about tonight, but uh, also uh, a number of different golf components, which we didn't talk about. Uh, the new Revolve right. uh, golf bag and multiple training aids out there. So again, if you visit NASA Golf, that's N A S S A U G O L F dot com, all of the information we talked about there tonight. And uh, you can reach out to them and uh, and have a, a discussion with them and see how they can uh, better help you become the best player that you can be and get you fitted for the right equipment as well. They've got a lot of great products there and training aids. So, Robert, thank you very much for taking some time and, and um, speaking with me tonight. And uh, I look forward to many more great conversations with you moving forward. But uh, thank you for what you do and I've, uh, the golf industry as well. You're quite welcome, and I thank you, Ted, and I look forward to having more uh, intelligent conversations with you and your audience, and they could give us a call with any questions or any concerns. We're always here to help the people and further the game. That's right. Uh, Again, go to nasagolf.com. All of the contact information and all of the products are there as well. So on that note, God bless, my friend. You have a great weekend. And um, God thank bless. you for again for joining me. Yeah, thank you for joining me again, Robert, thank on uh, Golf Talk Live. Thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure, Ted, and be well. Thank you, and all, all, right. all the best to your audience as well. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, that was uh, Robert Shorney, uh, owner of uh, Nassau Golf, and also uh, <clears throat> Nassau uh, Pre- Precision Casting uh, Inc. Again, all customized uh, clubs. They've got some great products there. You definitely need to 
uh, check it out. My apologies there for a slight glitch uh, towards the end with the, with the uh, mic. I had muted it by mistake, so um, there might be a slight pause, but just uh, keep on listening, and uh, uh, I picked up on the other end uh, with all of the information. Again, a special thanks to John Hughes and Jim Endicott uh, for joining me on the Coach's Corner panel, and again, a special um, uh, guest appearance by a uh, new friend, uh, Robert Shorney, owner of Nassau Golf. And again, one more time, I just want to let the folks know, if you're interested in helping uh, really improve your game, then you need to come join us this fall at the Golf Tips Magazine's uh, three-day golf school retreat. It's being held at Macklemore Resort, uh, which is up on Lookout Mountain in Georgia. Breathtaking views. Uh, You're literally about uh, 2,200 feet up in the air, and it's just a very uh, quiet, very serene, but very beautiful area. There's uh, some hiking trails in that nearby. They're about uh, roughly about uh, between 30 and 40 minutes away from Chattanooga, just to give you an idea. So it's a very short drive to Chattanooga if you want to go in and uh, and uh, see some of the uh, great restaurants and whatnot in Chattanooga. But obviously there's some great meals to be had at uh, the resort as well. But uh, um, join us uh, this October 27th to 29th. Uh, you need to uh, hurry, though, and make a decision. Uh, there's a lot of interest for this particular three-day golf school. So if you are interested, and you want to get more details, you need to reach out to me as soon as you can. Uh, the email address, again, is editor.golftipsmag at gmail.com, or you're welcome to call me. My phone number, this is my uh, direct cell, is 850-238-6130. That's 850-238-6130. You're going to experience some world-class golf instruction uh, over the three days from three of our uh, Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 instructors, John Hughes, Jim Endicott, and, of course, John Decker, who you heard on the show as well many times. So you don't want to miss this opportunity. Again, one last time, uh, email me at editor.golftipsmag at gmail.com or call 850-238-6130 to get more information. Uh, And, again, if you're interested in helping your game and you want to attend this retreat, uh, retreat, uh, this three-day golf school retreat, um, you need to reach out as soon as possible so we can get you uh, booked up and get you a spot because there are limited spots available. So, and they're, they're going to start going real quick here. So um, on that note, thanks everybody for tuning in tonight's uh, golf talk live uh, show. I will see you next week right here on golf talk live. God bless everybody. And thank you for joining me. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of golf talk live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network. 